Well, happy Easter, church. I know sometimes, uh, you know, we want to get excited on, on this day in particular, don't we? Yep. But we're Baptists, right? And so we're not quite sure how, especially in this building. So let's, we're going to try this again, okay? And so if you believe that Jesus has risen from the grave, say amen. 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 Hallelujah. Praise God. And if you don't believe or you're not sure, that's, that's okay. We're, we're delighted that you're here with us or perhaps watching on our live stream and able to join our celebration of what we believe to be uh, the celebration of our risen Lord. And we're going to consider God's truth this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so you might want to find your way there. I think you'll be helped to have a copy of God's word open as we study his word. And as while you're coming to 1 Corinthians 15, I do want to let you know that in addition to this being this glorious resurrection day, it's also kind of an important day for our, our church. Uh, that is, it will be this Wednesday in particular on April 7th, some 132 years ago. So 1889, April 7th, a handful of people decide to form, plant a local church in a little village called Hamilton and there started Hamilton Baptist Church 132 years ago. And so, happy anniversary, church. And uh, praise the Lord, we can celebrate that as well. <laughs> to be honest, it, it is a, it's a great honor of mine, and I hope it is as, of yours, if you're a member here, to be part of that legacy. That we're part of something larger than our own, in, in particular, lives, individual lives. And I'm being delighted to be able to do so and certainly be part of this wonderful legacy of this church. And this church has believed in the resurrection for 132 years. And I trust we'll continue to believe so even now as we go to God's word and hear from him. So hear now the word of God from 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let us pray together. Our Father, we do believe that to be true. Everything hinges upon the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we believe that he has risen from the grave. That he is alive. That he is our soon returning king. Crucified Savior, a resurrected Lord, a soon returning king. And the one we shall forever worship. Help us to worship him even now. Through his word we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
It was on June 18th in 1815 when the French army commanded by the French Emperor Napoleon fought a battle at Waterloo against the English commanded by the Duke of Wellington. The news of the result of that battle first came to England through a series of signalmen. Uh, a signalman was placed on top of Winchester Cathedral and told to keep an eye out on the sea. And when he received a message from a ship out in the, on the sea, he would pass it on to a man on a nearby hill who would then pass it on to another and then another and then another until news of the battle would finally reach London. Well, eventually the signalman atop that cathedral sighted the ship through the thick fog of the English Channel. And the man aboard the ship signed the first word, Wellington. He then signed the next word, defeated. And soon thereafter, the ship was shrouded once again in fog. Wellington defeated was the message that was sent across England all the way into London, followed quickly by doom and despair of the English for their last and best chance against Napoleon had been crushed. Or so they thought. It was not until three hours later when the fog lifted and the signal came once again from that ship. First word, Wellington. Second word, defeated. Third word, the. Last word, enemy. Wellington defeated the enemy. And the good news of that victory soon replaced the bad news and England's despair was set aside for utter jubilation. Well, about 2,000 years, or I guess 1,800 years prior to that, something similar happened, didn't it? It was there on Good Friday when the followers of Christ likewise were overcome with sorrow as the message they read upon the cross was, Jesus defeated. And it was not until three days later that the message was completed. Jesus defeated the enemy. That is, his apparent defeat was set aside as he rose in victory. And the resurrection in which he, he walked through changed the very world in which we live. That these men and women who followed Christ in those days with no allies, no resources, no money to speak of, no, no power, no position, not a prominent figure among them began to spread their message and soon in fact within one generation a new up to this point unseen religious community began in every outpost of the Roman Empire what was their message well we don't have to guess all we do is read Acts, the book of Acts. It tells us about the expanse of the church. And we come to Acts chapter 2 and we read these words. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. In Acts 3 we read, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. In Acts 4 we read, they continued to give testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In Acts 5 we read, the God of our Father raised Jesus and we are witnesses to these things. Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, and on we go. Their testimony was that Jesus has been raised. And that resurrection changed everything for them. That at least is indisputable. Perhaps you're here this morning and, 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 and you're not a believer and 
Maybe you're come because uh, uh, you have a loved one who's invited you or a friend who's invited you and you're somewhat skeptical to this claim that Jesus has risen from the dead. And, 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 and maybe you would say, well, Pastor, I don't, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe that that's an authority for me. I don't really care what it has to say. And so let, let's just for a moment just take away the Bible. Let's just, just for a moment, put the Bible away. What is it that everyone can agree on, whether, whether believer or not, whether, whether Christian or atheist? What is it that we all can agree on? I think we can all agree on two facts. Number one, that Jesus of Nazareth, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who died. That's indisputable. That's just history. It's not religion we're talking about. Jesus of Nazareth died. We all, a second fact, the other fact I think we all can agree on, that with almost immediately after his death, monotheistic Jews began to worship Jesus as their God, and soon thereafter welcomed into their faith community their ancestral enemies, the Gentiles. Like, that happened. That, that is indisputable whether you're a Christian or not. That's just simply history. The question I have is how do you account for what happened other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How do you account for the emergence of the Christian church in the way that it emerged other than the fact that they, what they said was true, that they saw Jesus rise from the dead? I would suggest there is no way to understand the emergence of the Christian church without the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I would hasten to add there is no reason to continue the Christian church without the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And, and so that will simply be my, uh, my two points this morning as we consider his resurrection. The, first of all, the evidence of the resurrection. And then secondly, the importance of the resurrection. So the first point will be thinking, will be dedicated, devoted to our minds. And the second point will seek to impact our hearts. And so consider, first of all, the evidence of the resurrection. Notice what Paul says here as he begins this whole chapter, by the way. All 57 verses of it are uh, a defense of the resurrection. We begin in verse 1 when he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul says, I want to remind you of the, what he calls the gospel. And Christ called the gospel. The gospel is simply an old English word for good news. Good news. So Paul is saying, I want to remind you of news of something that incredible has happened. And this, of course, is the core of Christianity, isn't it? Uh, the core of Christianity, as we sometimes say here, is not advice to follow. It's not instruction to, to embrace. The core of Christianity is not what you must do. Here are the things you must do to connect yourself to God. The core of Christianity, it, rather than being advice, it's news to believe. News of what God has done to connect us to himself. And what is this news? Well, Paul tells us there in verse 3, does he not? For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received from Christ. Oh, excuse me, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. And so Paul says the good news is that Jesus died for our sins, not for his sins, but for our sins. That Jesus was being punished by God in order to pay the debt of the sins of those who would believe in him. Now, if you don't have sins, you don't have to worry about this. But I would suggest that you do. And I think to the degree in which you know your own heart, you know you do. You don't even keep your own standard, let alone the standard from a holy God. 
And yet the good news that we see here, the gospel, is that God has made a way for us to be forgiven. That his son would die in your place, taking on the punishment for your sin. Jesus died, Paul says, for our sins. And then to show that the penalty was actually paid, we read in verse 4. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So that's the gospel right there, verse 3 and verse 4. And you notice the gospel has a resurrection in it. Jesus was raised from the dead. Which I, I understand is hard to believe for some. I mean, it's hard, it should be hard to believe for all of us, to be, to be honest. Right? I mean, the, the idea of someone getting up from the dead is pretty extraordinary. But you notice that uh, we're given evidence for it. For Paul goes on in verse 5 and says, and that he appeared to Cephas. That, of course, is just another name for Peter. Then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. You notice what Paul's explaining is that he didn't just get up and then disappear. He got up and then appeared appeared to hundreds of people. And Paul is writing this, by the way, 16 years after the crucifixion of Jesus in a publicly circulated letter, making a very public claim that, that Jesus didn't simply appear to me or appear to this guy over there. If he just did that, I could understand your doubts. If someone came and said, well, Jesus appeared to me, he got up from the grave and came to me, you're just going to take my word for it. I can understand us doubting that. But Paul says, don't you understand? He not only appeared to Peter, but then the 12, but he appeared to hundreds and hundreds of people. So don't take my word for it. Go talk to those people. Paul knows he's making a crazy claim here. That's why he's telling them to check it out with the hundreds and hundreds of others who actually saw Jesus after he was killed. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. That's not Paul's argument, is it? Oh, he may live within your heart, but Paul, no. He says, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives because I just had breakfast with him. He lives because we spent the day together. We need to change the hymn, I think. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives because he appeared to Peter, and then to the 12, and then to 500, right? That, I'll sing that. That sounds good, doesn't it? Not with me singing it. I understand that, but... It, Right? That's how we know. It's not some just mystical thing, oh, I feel Jesus some, somewhere inside here. Though we do, I don't want to deny that, but I know he lives, Paul says, because he showed himself to be alive. And if that's not enough, do you notice he turned the world upside down because of it? For Paul includes himself in this list, doesn't he? In verse 8, he says, last of all, as to one untimely board, he appeared to me also. Paul, a persecutor of the church, just changed everything. For Paul, his whole life was turned on its head, not for the good, by the way, for, for the worse, at least for the harder, if I could put it that way. Notice what he says there about himself in verse 30. He says, why, why am I in despair every hour? That's a hard life, to be in despair every hour. In fact, he goes on, doesn't he, and says in verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our, our Lord, I die every day. That's Paul's testimony. I am denying myself every day. I am dying every day. And then he gives us a concrete example of what he's talking about. What, gain, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? Okay, so in other words, Paul says, 
Listen, if there is no resurrection from the dead, it's dumb to fight beasts, okay? Amen? That makes sense, right? Why in the world am I going into battle against beasts in some, well, some type of trial that Paul is facing here if Christ wasn't raised from the dead? What should I do? Why am I denying myself every day? Well, Paul says if he wasn't raised from the dead, just read on in verse 32. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's just get as much out of this life as we possibly can. Just wring it out like a sponge because it's going to end and we're all going to die. And that's the end, period, end of you. So if that's reality, then just eat and drink and party and do all the rest. He says, why am I living this difficult life? Well, I'm living it because I've seen him. I've been with him. He appeared to me. He's alive. And I think this is very helpful for us. And the reason why I'm going over the evidence for Christ's resurrection is, to be honest, in particular, this, this building, by God's grace, is filled with young people. I was praying for my children last night as we were considering these truths. We even see in the choir, just seems like a quarter of them are young people. And you, you young people, in just a matter of years, are going to leave the Christian home in which you are raised, and you are going to be out in the world, and the world is going to declare to you that the faith that your family has passed on to you is a myth. It is false. And you will hear that over and over and over again. And I want to grind into your soul. I want to root into your heart that there is reasons for us to believe this. You know, one of the things we often hear as Christians when we talk about our faith, people will come up and say, well, I'm glad for you, right? I'm happy for you, pastor. You seem very excited about Jesus. I'm glad he fulfills you. I'm glad he's working for you. Good for you. But do me a favor, pastor. Don't insist that other people have to follow Jesus, right? Because Jesus might not fulfill them. Don't you understand what Paul is saying? <laughs> Paul, is, Paul is, is not saying, I believe in Jesus because he fulfilled me. He's not saying, I believe in Jesus because he enhanced my life. We see it's quite the opposite. Jesus threatened my life. He took away all my accomplishments, all the way that I've done, all that I gave myself to him. Paul is saying, I didn't want to believe in Jesus, but I had to because he rose from the dead. It's not a matter of whether Christianity is helpful, though I think it is. It's not a matter of whether it gives you hope, though it does. It's not a matter of whether it makes you a better person, though it certainly does that as well. The issue is, did he rise from the dead? And if he did not, how do we account for the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds who proclaimed his resurrection, not for their gain, but actually for their suffering? What possible alternative to the history is there? There are, in other words, what I'm trying to argue is there are reasons to believe this. This is not blind faith. This is not put away your questions and just, just take the leap with us. This is reasoned out belief. And yet it is, I will admit, it is belief. It is faith. We must have faith. And I think the question ultimately comes down to every single one of us is who are we going to believe? Who will we believe? Will we believe God or will we believe the world? I mean... Notice this is not just a question for us, but it's a question for them in Corinth. For we read in verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed, uh, no, excuse me, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? In other, in other words, there are some who are denying the resurrection of the dead. There you got two voices. You got the, the voice of believe, those who believe it, you got the voice of those who don't. You got the voice of God, you have the voice of the world. 
And I tell you frequently my practice, you know what my practice is? When the world and God disagree, I'm going to go with God. That's just kind of my standard practice. I'm going with God on this one. And so the, the world may shout all they want that there is no life after death. And Hollywood and the academia and our culture and politicians and the world summits may all gather together. And they all, all may unanimously agree and pass their resolutions. There is no resurrection. I'll tell you, this simple-minded man is going to go with God on that one. And, and, and some of you one day, just as I did when I was 19, you were going to walk into that philosophy class at the, at the state college and your philosophy press professor is going to be articulate, intelligent, and persuasive. And he's going to tell you, well, you, you can't believe this about Christianity or this is a myth over here. or We can't know what happened here. And he's going to ask you questions that you may not immediately have answers for. Right? And he's going to be very reasoned, just like the world is very reasoned. And I just tell you, I still think God happens to be the smarter of the two. And so I'm going to go with God on that one. In fact, there's much I can't explain. I can't explain how God said, let there be light, but he did it. I can't explain how he created life, but he did. I can't explain how he parted the sea or bread came from heaven or water from a rock, but God can. I, I don't understand how Jesus was born of a virgin. I don't quite get that. I don't know how he fed thousands or walked on water or healed the sick, but I believe that he did. I don't fully comprehend how the death of Jesus is a sufficient payment for my sin. Though I can't fully explain that, I believe it. And by the way, not to get too personal on you, it makes no sense to me why this holy God would set his affection upon a California teenager some 30 years ago who had no thoughts of God in his mind and certainly no love of God in his heart and said, I think I'll make him mine. In fact, I could almost guarantee there was a conversation in heaven something went something like this. You know what would be really funny is I'll make him a preacher. And so he, he could tell others about Jesus. No, I can't explain that, but it happened. And I can't tell you Exactly how it is that Jesus got up from the grave either. But I believe it. Because there is evidence to trust it. Jesus proved it. God said it. And I'm going to go with God on this one. You may reject the resurrection of Christ. We would ask you to reconsider. Well, Christ has been raised. Well, so we might ask, secondly, so what? Why is it important? And to this, we turn to the importance of the resurrection, I hope, to our hearts as well. I would suggest to you that the resurrection is vital to the Christian faith. Vital to the Christian faith. I learned in my studies this week that you can lose quite a bit of yourself and continue living. You can lose, you can lose a lot of blood and still live. You can lose your appendix and not die. Some of you know you could lose your gallbladder and live, you can lose your pancreas and live, you can lose your, your spleen and live, you can lose your thyroid and live, you can lose a kidney and live. I even learned you can lose your stomach and live. I'm not sure why you'd want to, but you can. But there are some organs you cannot lose. You cannot lose your heart and continue to live. You cannot lose your brain and continue to live. You cannot lose your lungs and continue to live. The medical profession calls those vital organs. That is, you need them. They're vital to keep living. I think we might make the same distinction in theological beliefs. There is quite a bit of Christianity that you can lose and still have Christianity. Right? You can lose your faith in believer's baptism, which you know I hold. You could still have Christianity. 
You could lose uh, an understanding of biblical gender roles and still have Christianity. You could lose the, the view of the rapture and still have Christianity. You could think that God created this world in six literal days, or you can think that God created this world in six ages. And either way, you still can have Christianity. But the bodily resurrection of Jesus, if you lose that, you have lost Christianity. It is a vital doctrine of the Christian faith. The Christianity cannot live without the resurrection of Jesus. And I know there are some who claim to be Christian and deny the resurrection of Christ. I would simply say that is like a person without a heart. I don't know what he is, but that's not a living Christian life. And then you might wonder, well, who am I to make such a declaration? Well, I would certainly hasten to add I'm a nobody. I'm simply just reading the Bible as we see in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And at this point, Paul plays this little game that I played with my kids last night. He plays the what if. So if Christ has not been raised, what if? What, what then? And so we read on in verse 14. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So if there, Christ is not raised, preaching is pointless. Well, you may already think preaching is pointless. That may not be a big deal to you. But notice he says your faith is in vain, that you have an empty hope. To make matters worse, we read verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, right? If there is no resurrection, we, have, we are lying about God and have been lying about God now for 2,000 years. And I assume he can't be very happy about that. In verse 17, we read, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. We see that again. And you are still in your sins. So if Christ is not raised, you're, there is no forgiveness. You continue to be under the wrath or condemnation of God. Now, that's somewhat confusing, isn't it? Because we read in verse 3 that Jesus died for our sins. How is it then that the resurrection is connected to our forgiveness? Well, I believe it, uh, you might understand it this way. Jesus' death was the punishment for our sins. After all, the wages of sin is what, Christian? It's death. The wages of sin is death. So Jesus died for our sins. That death is the punishment for our sins. But if Jesus remains dead... What that means is that the punishment continues. The debt has not been fully paid. For example, if you go to prison, how do we know you have paid your debt to society? Well, when they open the doors and let you out. Okay. Well, how do, how, Jesus died for the sin of the world. How do we know the debt is paid? Well, because the stone is rolled away and he is let out. His resurrection shows us that our Sin has been dealt with, that the victory is assured, that the condemnation is over. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then the debt is not paid, and you and I are still in our sins. Well, there's more bad news, I'm afraid, for we read in verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if there is no resurrection, then the ones we love who have died, they're just dead. They've perished, right? They're gone forever. We often comfort ourselves, Christians, don't we, around death. We comfort ourselves with hope, as we should. We say things like, well, they've gone home, or they're with Jesus, or they're in a better place. Well, what Paul is saying is if that there is no resurrection, if Christ has not been raised, they're not in a better place. They're in a hole in the ground somewhere, and a hole in the ground is not a better place. Right? They've perished. And then he sums it all up, doesn't he, there in verse 19. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, Paul says, listen, when I survey the world, there are a lot of pitiful people out there. But if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then Christians are at the top of the list. 
because we are trusting in a 2,000-year-old Jewish rabbi who was buried and rotting in some Middle Eastern tomb somewhere. And he said, come to me, and we should say, why should we do that? You're dead. He said, trust in me, we should say, why should we do that? You lied to us. He says, follow me, we should say, follow you where? To the grave? I don't think so. He said, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And we say, really? Because you're still dead in a tomb somewhere. And this day, and we're pitiful, Paul says, and I would just hasten to add that this day in particular is the most pitiful and ridiculous of all days if Christ has not been raised. You take away the resurrection of Jesus, you take out the heart of Christianity. You lop off its head. And I don't know what you have left, but whatever it is, it's not alive. The resurrection is the truth on which everything hinges. Without it, Christian ministry is pointless, personal faith is ineffective, God's character is malign, sin is unforgiven, future hope is removed, our present experience is meaningless, and those who died trusting in Christ have perished if Christ has not been raised from the dead. In light of that, it is to my great delight that I direct your attention to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is alive. And you notice as we read on, his resurrection is just the beginning. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul is reminding us of the feast of the first fruits, in which we first read about in Leviticus 23. We read, according to that passage, when you reap the harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruit, wave it before the Lord so that you may be accepted on the day after the Sabbath. You, of course, know Sabbath is Saturday. Therefore, the day after the Sabbath would be Sunday. That's when you do this festival on Sunday. Of course, it is on Sunday, and I trust no coincidence that Christ rose as the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, a bundle of life waved before the Lord that we might be accepted. He is the firstfruits. And if there is a first, that means what? There is more to come. If I told you this was my first point in my sermon, you would rightly assume there is at least another point. In other words, first doesn't mean only, it means preceding. Jesus is not the only fruit, he is the first fruit. There is other fruit to follow. Who will follow him in this resurrection? Well, we're told in verse 23, are we not? But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, he comes first, and then at his coming, those who belong in Christ. Those who belong in Christ. Those who believe in Christ are those whom Paul has said uh, have simply fallen asleep. They are those who will be raised. In fact, don't you love how Paul refers to the Christian dead? There in verse 20, they've fallen asleep. We've seen that in verse 6. And again in verse 18, he says those who have died in Christ are those who have Falling asleep. They're not, in Paul's mind, they're not really dead. They're sleeping. They're, they're, they're taking a nap. And what do you do when your nap is over? Right? You get up. That's what you do. They'll rise again. And so we know from 2 Corinthians that when, when we die, our spirit leaves our body and is united with Jesus. But one day that spirit will, will be reunited to our sleeping body. And that body will be transformed to be made like Jesus' resurrected body, glorious, sinless, a perfect body in which we shall live upon a new, perfect world forever. And so Paul says, listen, they're not dead. They're just asleep. And so I think about even our, our church here. 
I think, I think about Mary Johnson and her husband Tom. They didn't die. They're just sleeping. I think about Anne Case and her son Alan aren't dead. They're just falling asleep. I think about Valley Byrne and Doug Stratton and Jeanette Lyon and Roy Cooper and Janice Butts. I say, where are they? Well, they're sleeping, aren't they? Just taking a nap. Don, I think about your mom, Nancy, and your husband, Mark. They're just sleeping, waiting to be woken by Christ. I think about Dave Updegrove and Colonel Dick Trapp and our brother Mark Fernari and Pastor Glenn. They're just sleeping too. I think about our sweet sister Ann Frazier and Renee Sanders who will memorialize this Saturday. And I tell you, they are simply asleep. And you may not know them, but just to remind my own heart on this Easter Sunday, I think about Gerald Carn and his wife of 66 years, Barbara Carn, who I call Grammy and Granddad. And I'll tell you, because of the resurrection of Jesus, they're just sleeping. And I will see them again one day. I think this, this is kind of fun, to be honest. Uh, you might want to even say in your own heart, you have loved ones who have died, don't you, in Christ? You might even do well this Easter Sunday to remind your own heart, even now as I speak to you, say their name and realize, say, because Jesus, you have risen from the dead, they are not dead. They are simply sleeping. And you shall see them again. You see how the resurrection changes everything. It changes our future. It changes our destination. These aren't empty words. These are proven promises. Jesus rose, and so will I, and so will you. He is the first fruits. But I tell you, it doesn't simply impact your eternity. It doesn't simply impact the day in which you die. It actually impacts the life in which you live now. You know, sometimes we use the phrase, we live off the land. That is, the land provides what we need, right? I think in many ways Christians live off the resurrection of Christ. It provides what we need for this life. It is intended to impact your day-to-day -day life. It is intended to give you strength when trouble comes or purpose when in hardship or meaning in your Christian labor. I mentioned that 1 Corinthians 15, Paul pretty much devotes the entire 57 verses to proving the resurrection of Christ and laying out its implications. And it's only when he gets to the very last verse in this chapter, verse 58, that he actually applies it to our lives. And we might do well as we conclude this morning to consider how this should change us. For you notice in verse 58, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, stand fast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You know, when trouble comes in our life, people tend to respond in two ways. They often respond with despair. Some will respond with despair. They'll be crushed under it. They'll, woe is me, how am I going to get through this? The other response that people have at the other end of the spectrum is defiance, willpower. I'm going to push on through. I a stiff upper lip and all the rest. I'm not going to let this get to me. Well, I want you to see what the Bible is actually cautioning, uh, counseling us. It's not defiance, certainly not that, and not despair. You see what the Bible says, rather than those two alternatives, is what we should have hope. And that hope comes through the resurrection. What's the first word? Therefore, in light of 57 verses on the resurrection, therefore, be steadfast and immovable and abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work is not in vain. There's hope that invades the Christian life day to day. My children uh, this week were, were watching uh, the Lord of the Rings movie for like the hundredth time. Um, 
it is a, it is a good movie, but as you know, the, um, as usual is usual the case. The, the books are better, and of course, many understand that J.R.R. Tolkien is writing a Christian allegory in many ways. And there's this one of my favorite scenes in the books is when this when this uh, Sam character Sam Gamgee is in a very difficult time and a very troubling place. And you watch Sam's trajectory, and he starts out very defiant. He's going to push through it. He can make it. He realizes eventually he can't, and he finds himself in utter despair. He goes from defiance to despair. But then something happens. And Tolkien writes, Sam crawled from the hiding place and looked out. The land seemed full of creaking and cracking and sly noises. Yet there, peeping among the cloud above the dark tower, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land. Hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Now for a moment, his own fate ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself down, and putting away all fear, he cast himself into an untroubled sleep. I think what Tolkien is telling us, what Paul is telling us certainly here, is we need something outside of us. We need a hope. We need a hope to pierce our heart. We need a hope to put everything in perspective. You understand the hope that God gives us in Christ is his resurrection. He has been raised. And because he has been raised, you will be raised. When Jesus was raised from the dead, God, it's just not fireworks. It's just not ooh and ah, and isn't this wonderful. Jesus is actually punching a hole through this world into the world he will bring. He is bringing with him a world of truth and love, a world of majesty and joy, a world in which nothing grows old or dies, a world of fullness and, and meaning. And as we live in this world of decay and trouble, we get a glimpse through Christ's resurrection of the beauty and the perfection that he will one day bring. In this world of darkness, the resurrection is our ray of light. It is our star shining that one day Christ will return and what he has started in his resurrection, he will complete. In fact, Paul mentions here in verse 24 this glorious truth. Then the end comes when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all things, all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So my brothers and sisters, as you live in this world of creaking and crackling and sly noises and difficult relationships and uncertain future and job difficulties and cultural opposition and chronic pain. Don't simply look at the hardship and be filled with despair and say, I can't handle it. And don't look at yourself and be filled with defiance and say, I will handle it. You look to the resurrection until it pierces your heart. You look at the world then through the resurrection, and Paul says, therefore, you will be immovable. You will find power through the resurrection of Christ. You will find power to overcome, overcome your, your groaning and your moaning and your need to gossip and lay on the horn in frustration. You will find peace 
you will find joy, you will find generosity, you will find forgiveness, you will find self-giving because you realize we have already won. God's promises are true. The reward is coming. Christ is alive and returning and the resurrection will change how you see yourself. It will change how you see your neighbors. It will change how you see the world for one day this will all be swallowed up in glory and life. Jesus is alive. And therefore, Christian, so shall you be forever and ever. Happy Easter. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the work of our Lord. It changes everything if we will allow it. We pray that this would simply not be one in a long list of Christian beliefs that we tuck away and bring out once a year. But this will be the lens in which we view all of life. In trouble, in hardship, in uncertainty, in fear, in joy, in delight, in peace, we would continue to look through the glasses of the resurrection of our Lord and see things as they really are, not simply as how they appear to us in that moment. Empower us through Christ's resurrection, knowing that one day we too shall be raised and shall be with him forevermore. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.